0: I'm Tom Barberley, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe, December 4th, 2009. Model Rail Radio is a listener-generated internet radio show, and this evening it's very much listener-generated because we have both Chris Abbott and Steve from Chicago in the chat room Mm -hmm. this evening. Chris is trying to uh, get his Skype connection together so he can call in, but I have to first start by saying... I was a little concerned that Chris may not actually be appearing on future model rail radios after the fiasco last time. However, we have recording audio, as no doubt folks listening to the podcast will find out. So it's wonderful to have uh, Chris on the show, at least in in chatroom form. And we received our first listener feedback, in fact our first listener question as well, from Chris Shorthouse in New Zealand. And Chris has gone back into the hobby recently. Um, he's had a, a bit of time off, according to his email, and he was asking questions associated with DCC, uh, whether expensive or more expensive DCC equipment was worth having, uh, whether you know whether there were savings to be had. He mentioned a few brands, and Chris Abbott wonderfully uh, went and did some research. So hopefully uh, Chris will be on the call this evening, and we could talk a little bit more about Chris Shorthouse's question. But this is certainly. Listener-generated internet radio. If you have questions for uh, Chris Abbott or myself or Steve in the chat or uh, potentially also Duncan McCree, who is going to be calling in this evening, please contact me, tom at modelrailradio.com. And all these parties have also joined the mailing list associated with Model Rail Radio. So if you want to ask a question, give feedback... Um, possible show topics in the future, see what folks in the Model Rail Radio community are talking about, thinking about, or various events that they're going at, layouts in their area, then the Model Rail Radio mailing list is the place for you to go. So go to modelrailradio.com or one word, click on the mailing list, and you can subscribe to the mailing list too. Chris proposed a topic this evening uh, associated with the benefits of a shelf layout, and I had some shelf layout updates. I also had some of my own experiences in the, the hobby updates, and I'm probably considerably behind uh, Chris Shorthouse's question. I've not really considered DCC yet, um, so it was wonderful having Chris Abbott's experience in terms of his knowledge and background about various DCC systems and things like that. But my own experience over the past couple of weeks has been working on my shelf layout. And I saw um, Chris Abbott's photos of the recent Christmas model train show of the previous episode on Facebook as well. And the thing that struck me from uh, Chris's layout and the whole nature of kind of module layouts is the need for simplicity, simplicity in the track, simplicity in the general design, and I guess in some regards simplicity in the operation and this is something that really caught me because obviously people such as Chris are long-time model rail enthusiasts, a lot of experience, a lot of uh, detail in terms of creating structures and weathering and these kind of things. And there's a element there's a of kind of beauty through simplicity, uh, which I found looking at Chris's uh, module and uh, related uh, you know, modules around his module, part of obviously his module group. So no, that was very interesting and it also gave me a reflection of one of the earlier shows where I talked a little bit about the narrative of a simple layout or at least the narrative of a shelf layout and the topic for this evening was going to focus very heavily on shelf layouts, what could be done uh, with shelf layouts and really how they're an introduction to the hobby. So I will give my shelf layout update. It's not a particularly good update uh, in terms of uh, positive things, but lots of learning experiences happened in terms of lots of bits of broken stuff. So I thought I'd convey that to the model rail radio listening audience, uh, with a view that uh, Chris Abbott can uh, can call in. He's just an I'm enthusiast. Am. Here we go. Hello, Chris. Good evening. And we're actually recording tonight for a change.
1: Well, oh, that's good to know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so looking at the, looking at the photos and I saw the photos of your um, your module and uh, obviously your your club's module on facebook it um, it struck me that really the the ele- it's almost it's almost like a kind of painting or musical style where the the simplicity actually leads into a great degree of complexity. Uh, we talked a little bit in the section that wasn't recorded associated with how you actually design a a module layout in terms of mistakes made in this kind of refining movement towards simplification. Do you think the same kind of rules applicable to to this kind of simplification also lend themselves to shelf layouts? Or do you think as you design a shelf layout, you can add a little bit more interesting complexity than you would in a modular layout?
1: Well, in a a modular layout, you, you have considerations that you don't have to worry about with a permanent installation. The buildings, the trees, and other scenic details have to be either... Uh, robust or they have to be removable for transport and um, your track work anytime you cross a joint uh, a section joint or a module joint you have to come up with a uh, either a cheater rail or fitter rail uh, or some sort of convoluted alignment device to uh, to ensure that everything goes back the same way the next uh, the next time you set up and in a, in a shelf layout, you really don't have to go to those great lengths. Uh, even if you wanted to make it portable in case you were going to move or or change locations, uh, you could lay track right over the joint and leave it whole uh, between, say, pieces of shelving, either IKEA shelving or or melamine uh, uh, slabs or, or any other kind of uh, of a horizontal member. You could lay the, the rail right over the joint and if you needed to move it at some point in the future, you could cut through the rails at that time and uh, free up the smaller pieces. Uh, and, of course, your your structures can be more delicate and you can leave them in place. Uh, your scenic details can be uh, unattached or uh, just uh, free to move around as you see fit to stage a scene. And in the modular setup, you really can't do that. Um, so you're, you're coming at it from, from two different uh, points of... Uh, of, uh, approach.
0: And in terms of your, your module design specifically, I mean there's, there's obviously a good degree of trial and error in the actual creation of the, the track layout and these kind of things. Can you describe some of the mistakes you've made through your three module experiences and perhaps some feedback to folks that are starting out with module layouts?
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, we I started out uh, with an N-Track module. I spoke to uh, Jim Fitzgerald who uh, was one of the Progenitors of the standard in uh, in the left Coast a number of years ago at the time that I, I joined the uh, the local group and uh, we chatted briefly about the three track mainline system going through the uh, the module and he had said that originally it was only supposed to be two uh, with the third track as the option, but by the time they got around to producing the document, pretty much everyone had put the third track in, so the three track main became um, uh, sort of a de facto standard uh, uh, without the intent of, of, uh, of the, original, uh, the original thought process uh, being behind it. And unfortunately, if you're trying to model a prototype scene, there's very, very few locations that have uh, triple main, uh, main line. You can, uh, you can often see still in, in many locations double-track main, but primarily it's single-track main uh, under uh, uh, CTC control. For uh, most of the mainline routes in uh, North America these days, and uh, what I found was that uh, no matter how you set up the scene, and in a, in a in an n track group, there there is no well in most n track groups there is no unifying overall scenic theme chosen for uh, for the the group as a whole. So you can have a, a very disparate array of, of modules uh, set. Uh, one next to one another, a, a snow scene versus a fall scene versus a, a full summer uh, urban next to rural next to uh, industrial, and uh, the only uh, linking factor being the tracks running through it, and I found that to be well it really didn't fit my my thought process ultimately, so i had to had to drop the end track uh, idea because I just it was ultimately unsatisfying from from both trying to put together a scenic premise for the small module, and uh, also for any operational uh, opportunities you might have, there just isn't enough room on a on a standard two x four module to to do an awful lot of anything uh, in a realistic manner. So, I guess my my mistake in Entrack was was following it in the first place. Now. Well, was that, a fascinating,
0: uh, so, sorry to cut you off Chris, there was a no. fascinating internet video series from a fellow who was building an N-Track layout. He he went to shows and did other um, video things, I think his, his video podcast eventually fell by the wayside. But what he had done was taken, I guess, a relatively small attic space and created a series of N-Track modules around the attic space where he could kind of take them up and and pull them to pieces. And I thought that was an interesting application of NTRAC to kind of create a series of NTRAC modules that were part of a, a broader layout. But I do agree with you. It, it does sound like um, something with a sufficient degree of rigidity that the creative element. I mean, do you get the impression that NTRAC modelers just kind of get together and agree that it's all going to be a particular period, a particular season, and then they go off and. Is, is that the way it's done, or is it really just haphazardly put together?
1: Um, well in in our local area, we had a number of n track groups that uh, that had formed up, and the the one in the east end of the city had a unifying theme of the uh the autumn scene and it was done very very well um, and had uh, more of a it was more of a sectional implementation everything went together in the same orientation at every show as opposed to being uh, swapped around so the third track route it was taken away from the front edge of the module and and dragged into the background so you got a much more uh believable scene relative to uh to prototypes and uh it was done to a fairly high level of uh scenic execution and it ran really well so it was nice to see but it was um it was a finished uh modular set uh, there was really no room for more to be built and added and fitted into it uh, to add to the uh, to the display the modular group in the west end tended to be more haphazard in their approach uh, more of a free for all and that 's the uh, the group I was uh, a member of and there was no uh, there was no desire within the group except for a very very small subset of people to have anything that was a, um, a unified team or a unified uh, uh, era or even a, a, an area locale to model. So it just, to me, it didn't, it didn't look right. Now, all that said, n has got to be responsible for bringing more people out of their basement and into the public eye than maybe any other efforts in model railroading in the last 20 years. I mean, it's really, it got, it got people going and it got people out to shows and it got new stuff produced. And there were examples, and there are examples still, of people who have taken the, the basic premise of n which is the electrical and mechanical interface at the end, and done really amazing things with it. Uh, the, best, the best example probably is still the New River subdivision, uh, which was based on a prototypical area, and really did a, a tremendous job of modeling that to a, to a high degree of, of uh, authenticity. Uh, or accuracy, and uh, it 's a shame that that um, that there's no there 's no impetus out there to to encourage people to really think outside the box, and uh, the box being the two by four foot panel flat panel of plywood that that most people adopt and and stick with is their uh, their modular premise, not everybody can not everyone is a cabinet maker. Not everyone has all the manual skills to, to manufacture, um, tight fitting joints and, and complicated miters, uh, to get something out of this rectangular shape. It's very easy to knock together a ladder frame with a piece of plywood on top of it and be going that afternoon, uh, much more difficult to, to come up with something that's more organic and, uh, demanding of, of, uh, you know geometry and trig efforts, but Entrack has has done a tremendous job of bringing the modelers out of uh, the lone wolf uh, situation, out of the basement, and into the show circuit, and uh, that's good for everyone, I think, regardless of the uh, the scale and gauge.
0: Certainly, and of course, it was Leo Bicknell from Reality Reduce. that was the the video series that you mentioned and um so sorry, I interrupted you you You, you move from NTRAC to your your next module scale what What did you learn from that?
1: Oh dear <laughs> I learned that uh, that you can't go from one extreme to the other you can't go from from the two by four foot square plywood flat uh, section to something that's completely organic with grades and uh, a contoured uh, end board with a with a scenic profile built into it uh, it's just it was just too radical a change and uh, a group of us got together and and did uh, did this for on 30 and uh, we had uh, our premise was that on 30 is supposed to be representative of uh, logging and mining extraction roads uh, marginal railroads that, that don't uh, that don't have uh, the wherewithal to to pay for a a beautifully manicured right of way. They have to kind of eke their way around uh, river courses and over the follow the ridge of of uh, hills uh, and the uh, basic topology they're at the mercy of it. and we were trying to encourage that sort of appearance in the modules, and unfortunately, the specification that we we developed and adopted while the small number of us were able to execute a, a reasonable effort in terms of the technical merit there really weren't enough of us to to build enough modules to build a complete point-to-point layout we only ever managed to do half a layout at best kind of a point-to-loop uh, without a terminus, not much operational possibilities. And that's due to a number of factors of our uh, our uh, relative uh, workshop arrangements, our storage arrangements, our transport arrangements for all of us at the time. So we all had an awful lot of fun doing it, and we learned an awful lot of things, and we really pushed what we knew about uh, track laying and... Um, Construction techniques, woodwork, but people looked at it and thought we were mad. They thought we were completely over the, around the bend. Anyway, they they didn't they didn't get it, and they didn't want to go through the hassle of trying to, to duplicate anything that we were doing. So, ultimately, a failure. Uh, a for effort, but uh, <laughs> F F for execution. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out. It was too extreme. And in terms yeah. of the
0: in terms of the actual wooden structure, I mean this is something I've found through, you know, basic woodworking experiments, making boxes and shelves for people and these kind of things. If you take an interfacing wooden structure, particularly a complicated one, and you present it to five different people that live in five different environments, maybe their houses have slightly different humidity, maybe they have different heating concerns. I mean, that wood will actually change its shape independent of anything that you have control over,
1: won't it? Oh, yes. That that much is evident. And over the last, let's say over the last 20, 25 years, I've seen a significant change in the quality of, of wood that's been available to local do-it-yourself centers where you can where you can go and pick up uh, sheets of plywood or other dimensional lumber, even the quality of the plywood has gotten much poorer yes. Um it it's there's voids in the in the plies uh the number of plies are reduced the uh the type of wood instead of being uh like uh baltic birch or something like that you 're getting it almost seems like a spruce ply
2: yes.
1: and it it's it just does not maintain any sort of stability over time it, it's it's not as bad as a piece of finger joint pine or or other softwood but it uh, the last show for instance on the on the module set that I have uh, it's been pretty good in terms of stability but between the show last February and the Christmas show that I just finished here in uh, in November three of the interface points uh, internal to my, my three sections shifted horizontally by about 35, 40 thou. And one, yeah, and one joint shifted uh, 35 thou vertically. So I had to relay or realign uh, three sets of tracks horizontally, which wasn't so bad. But I had to do something about this uh, vertical mismatch, which was very, very apparent when a car went over it. you got a, a quite a big you know, thirty thousandths of an inch doesn't seem like much, but it it in terms of the, the bump you got as it moved over the, the joint, it was it was pretty pretty badly apparent and it something had to be done. So ultimately the pattern makers dowels, the brass dowels that we had used to install between the sections to minimize this sort of thing, I had to knock one of them out in order to give me enough play to realign that just for this show and now I have to go and and redo that interface somehow, uh, clamp it up together, and, and try again with the pattern makers dolls. But ultimately, now moving into uh, a, a structure here where I store the modules that is much more humid than my previous locale, um, I'm seeing more changes in in the dimensional stability of the uh, of this module set. And unless you come up with something. Well, let's face it, even if you did something in metal, uh, like a monocoque style, if you're going to do an, uh, a stress skin or or uh, frames and skin uh, construction like an aircraft, it's still made out of something that's subject to variation of, with temperature. And unless everybody makes it out of exactly the same materials and stores it in exactly the same conditions, there will be variation over time. And that's really not... Something you can get away from you 're going to have to you have to build that uh, a method for dealing with that variance into your specification right from the start otherwise you're you 're bound for oh days and days of anger and misfortune and and uh, distemper really
0: and in terms of finding good wood how do you how do you recommend people do that I mean certainly my own experience is even in a five to ten year surveying of buying wood and making various things when i was younger and although i was in australia and my access to wood was different than it is here i remember being able to actually go and and pick out quite impressive bits of wood and now even at the high end i mean the, the wood stores here that are specifically wood related the best one has closed recently i guess due to lack of business it was picked up by wells fargo before they closed it but uh, the, even the more high-end um, specialty wood dealers here, it's just impossible to find good timber. Is it something where are there online groups that help look out for good timber? Is it something that you do by word of mouth? How far would you travel for good timber, Chris?
1: Jeez, uh, that's, that's a tough call. I mean, really, <clears throat> if I was going to do, and I am going to do another module or two uh, over time, Uh, probably sooner rather than later, because I'm itching to get some some structures put on that just don't fit onto my existing module set. First thing, I would not use dimensional lumber at all. I would uh, try and use uh, uh, nine-ply plywood, and specifically because there's going to be less variation over time with that than there will the dimensional lumber, I don't really feel justified in going out or, and buying uh, maple or oak to make framing for a module and the softwoods won't stand up over time with uh, you know, just, just the cupping effect that you'll get on a 6-inch uh, nominal 5.5-inch uh, uh, piece of uh, lumber is enough to open up a 125 thou gap at the rail end and you can't have that. You, you you can't have that much play. First of all, it's, it's buying the de- decent lumber, stable lumber like like the plywood, and ripping it into uh, appropriately sized strips to make your framing out of, and using uh, perhaps um, oh one of the one of the major uh, hardware manufacturers like Stanley or something that has uh, ninety degree corner joints that uh, you can screw and glue to the uh, uh, or uh, screw into the, the corners to assist with uh, long-term uh, alignment, uh, maintaining long-term alignment, and then sealing everything really, really well with uh, uh, either an enamel paint or uh, an exterior grade latex and seal everything to, to minimize the effects of moisture over time and then start putting your scenic forms on and... Uh, you know, so it's a combination of things, but I would avoid the typical dimensional pine lumber uh, pretty much at all costs. It's just not worth it. And in any reasonable size town, you should be able to get three quarter ply, uh, five eighths ply. I know that's going to seem pretty heavy, but, uh, you know, if, if, if everything doesn't go together at the show properly when you set up, And the engines and the cars are derailing at the joints or uh, you have gaps and your scenic material, your ground foam or whatever is falling between the joints and your ballast is running down. It looks awful and nobody's enjoying themselves. So for the sake of a little bit of extra effort at the beginning setting up and a little bit extra effort taking down, you get a much better experience overall uh, for the duration of the show, much better presentation. And uh, minimize the fuss a little bit.
0: Very interesting. Well, I wish I had this information when I started my shelf layout because I think that I certainly have learned a lot already doing it, and I'd certainly do a lot of things differently. And you're absolutely right the surface and the, the joining parts of the surface are, are critical things. So, thank you for giving me this advice for my next shelf layout.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: you on the call and we had this email from Chris Shorthouse uh, in New Zealand so I wanted to touch on your experiences with DCC and the advice that you can give to Chris. What are your thoughts?
1: Well, uh, first thing uh, from New Zealand, uh, I have to say, how's it going mate? Nice to hear from you. Uh, glad you're listening to the show. Uh, good to hear that you're back into the model rail scene after an absence but uh, for DCC Uh, I see your first question, why would I buy an expensive decoder over, uh, say, a cheaper Hornby one? Well, frankly, why would you buy an expensive car over a a cheap car or an expensive house over a cheap house? It's all to do with the features, the warranty, and the quality of the product that you're getting. If you're just looking for an extremely basic fleet decoder that has one or two functions and lighting and basic motor control, then a... A $20 decoder uh, certainly will do the trick for you from just about any of the manufacturers. But if you're looking for digital sound and uh, advanced motor control or uninterruptible power to deal with uh, dirty track issues, you really have to stump up the cash and go for something a little more expensive, uh, which will benefit you in the long run. Uh, That said, the best decoder in the world is not going to make an engine that doesn't run well mechanically run any better uh, you have to make sure that the the locomotive itself is uh, the mechanism is free moving there's no binds It's nice and smooth uh, you might you have to definitely determine what the stall uh, the stall requirement of the motor is that is holding it with full power applied how many amps of, of current you're drawing so that you size the decoder appropriately you may find that you need to replace the motor that's in the engine with a, uh, with a better quality one, either a, a skew-wound five-pole motor or seven-pole motor versus, uh, uh, versus the old open frame uh, ones that had this kind of a cogging effect. You could feel it cog between uh, uh, stator positions as it was going down the track, um, or the gearing, and uh, you might find that that's noisy especially if it's uh, kind of loose plastic gears. There's companies like uh, High Level and Ultrascale in the UK and Northwest Shortline in the US that sell regearing kits and complete gear mechanisms. And, of course, this is all dependent on the complexity of the job you want and your own skill level and your own comfort level. But if you want the counter-EMF and adjustable frequency and more programming and lighting effects and transponding, then you're going to have to go up to, uh, to a more capable decoder, and that's going to cost money because the more capable decoders are offered by fewer companies like, like Digitracks, Soundtracks, uh, Lentz, all have top-end stuff with high current capacity, uh, real digital sound, um, programmability options, configurability options that aren't available on the low end.
0: This may be more a Duncan McCree question, but has brushless have brushless motors entered the model railroading hobby yet?
1: Uh, yeah, I've seen a couple. ESCAP um, makes uh, makes some motors that are that are suitable, and I think the other one is Maxon uh, that I saw. But with a brushless motor, you have to be very very cautious about the type. Not all decoders can run brushless motors. Certainly or coreless motors that you have to get the right one for the job. Otherwise you'll you'll burn it out. Yeah, uh, they you don't, don't want to be
0: it paired, to... clearly. But oh. there are actually brushless motors out there.
1: Yeah, but they're they're a bit of coin. Uh, <laughs> they're not <laughs> I, I mean that. a good a good mashima motor um, or a Canon motor will do the job for ninety nine percent of what you're what you're gonna yeah. run into. And the nice thing about especially HO and N-scale these days is there are a lot of drop-in or plug-and-play decoders that you can pick up that are specifically engineered for, for certain engines, like the, the Cato uh, SD90, I think, has a, has a drop-in decoder for it. I know the old uh, SD40 used to have one. It's, you know Okay, it's $5 more or $7 more, but you don't have to cut and fit any wires. You don't have to do any, any uh, grinding of the frame. You just pop the, the cover off, remove a lighting board or uh, a deinstall a plug, plug the new thing in, button it all up, and you're ready to go. So that extra few dollars uh, is worth it in terms of just the, the frustration factor that you save. Yeah, and as I said, most, most of the new engines that are coming out are either DCC-ready or DCC-equipped, some of them with sound, uh, cust- even custom sound in some cases, uh, specifically designed for that prototype uh, with the digital samples of the actual bells and whistles and horns from that particular uh, prototype. So uh, really, we're, we're suffering from a, uh, an overload of, of cool stuff to play with these days and there's just so much choice again i keep coming back to that but there's so many things to choose from sometimes it's it's hard to make the right choice
0: and i think uh, i think chris shorthouse had questions with regards to hornby specifically i think he had a an hour question from memory can you can you talk to hornby as a particular dcc producer or others i mean my understanding is that DCC is independent of, of gauge specifically, but have you had experience with, with those kind of gauges and DCC?
1: I can't speak about Hornby specifically with DCC, although I'd be surprised if they made the DCC chips or decoders themselves. Frankly, I would think they would, they would brand somebody else's product. Um, Hornby's been around for a long time, and their expertise is really in, in the producing of the, the locomotives and the rolling stock. Uh, but uh, I can't see them. It, it would, wouldn't make economic sense for them to produce DCC decoders on their own. I would think they would just rebrand something from a, a commercial supplier. And to your point about uh, DCC being independent of manufacturer, the, spec- the communication specification, um, the API, if you will, it is, is set. And it's, uh, the document is, is published by the NMRA and every decoder must comply with every decoder and command station must comply with that communication specification. That is, the duration of the bits and the, the uh, amplitude of the bits and everything have to be dead on or within the tolerance range in order to, to meet the conformance. So, whether or not somebody like ESU or, or Train Control Systems or, or Lentz makes a decoder or a command station, they all have to transmit and receive and respond to the same data, the packets that are um, that are put out. So at the macro level, everything's supposed to work together. Everything's supposed to be interoperable. And for the large part, that's true. Uh, there are certain circumstances where you'll run into a problem with uh, a particular decoder may not be able to be programmed successfully all the time by a certain command station under certain conditions. But there's a lot of workarounds and, and uh, known bugs that are that are posted on the net, and everybody's really good about helping out to determine uh, ways to, to fix problems for uh, for new and advanced people alike. So. Uh, The DCC community as a subset of the train, the model railway community, is uh, is very active and they're doing an awful lot of very, very cool stuff from uh, automated control to signaling to um, uh, complete scenarios where you make up a train in the yard and dispatch the train to a computer system which takes it out onto the main line. Uh, All signals and aspects are are detected and controlled by the computer. You can go off to staging and do some other on-stage activities and then return to the yard Whereupon control is returned to you to break down and make up a new train. Uh, I've seen that personally on an N-scale layout locally and it's brilliant. The guy has a little tiny cockpit in the center of the layout. There's only room for him, but he liked to he liked the idea of trains running while he made up things in the yard, so he went to great lengths to create this using various companies' uh, DCC products, and uh, it really is something to see uh, that a single practitioner has done something this complex uh, with basically only support from the web and the, and the manufacturers, the product themselves, by email.
0: Amazing, amazing. And a complete newbie question. In terms of track noise, how good does the track need to actually be to give the right DCC signal through? Is it is there a degree of tolerance associated with, I'm thinking frogs and these kind of things, where you have some kind of implicit track noise? Or is it something where, um, I mean, what, what's the tolerance associated with DCC?
1: Well, DCC, DCC is digital command control. And it's... I say that because there were command control systems prior to DCC that were not digital, they were analog, and they relied on either radio frequency or, say, time division uh, operation of of a signal riding on a power, uh, a net power amount. So a small 1 volt signal might be riding on 12 volts of power. Um, and the signal to noise ratio was was pretty low you if anything was in the way, if there was any dirt or there was any uh, interference from a local transmitter or whether it's a radio set citizens band um, uh, an fM antenna anything like that it would be a it would be a nightmare to operate uh, with dcc the signal and the power are the same thing so you have a um, a differential signal that's going out that the full amplitude of say uh, plus and minus 16 volts is available, uh, and it's what it's doing is instead of trying to do uh, peak detect, it's doing edge detect. It it really is a very robust system when you look at it. It's um, it's uh, it's a two wire multi-drop telecom system with some redundancy due to the retransmission of, of packets. Uh, certain packets are transmitted multiple times in sequence to ensure that the, the data is received by the decoders. And uh, because the signal-to-noise ratio is, is, is amazing, I mean, it's as amazingly high as the signal is the power. The, the, the bits are the full amplitude of the whole uh, power uh, power signal and it's it's almost an AC wave. If you if you were to put a DC meter onto the, the rail, you would see pretty close to zero volts, but if you put AC, an AC meter on, you'll see close to the peak. There's a circuit available that you can rig up to go between a standard digital multimeter and the track and get a fairly accurate uh, measurement of what the voltage level is available, but you won't see the you won't see the the data stream unless you put a packet sniffer or an oscilloscope on the on the rails and and uh, detect it. It's not that fast. It's only about 32 kilohertz, if I recall correctly.
0: Okay. Okay. So basically, you get better operation under DCC on even relatively noisy track than you would on DC.
1: Yeah. You you can still end up with with interruptions in the signal if if you lose electrical continuity completely and that manifests itself especially if you've got um sound equipped decoders uh some of them have a distinct startup sequence uh in the case of a diesel uh, the generator may start up and uh there'll be a series of noises where brakes are released and everything if you get an interruption that's sufficient for the system or the decoder to think that zero volts is has uh Appeared for a moment. It'll start up all of that stuff again while it's running, and that's a bit disconcerting. But uh, with the all-wheel pickup and most of the engines today, even in the, the steam engines, it happens less and less. But you need uh, you need to maintain your track the same way. Clean it. Um, clean the wheels on the engine. Uh, clean the wheels on your cars so that the crud that they pick up doesn't get redistributed across the track. And uh, in the case of a, a, a portable layout where you might be moving it in and out of a uh, high humidity situation, high temperature situation, you can get more oxidization quicker, you can, uh, you're can you going to spend more time cleaning the track. That's all. It's just maintenance. maintenance won't go away regardless of what you do unless you put a battery in the engine and ignore the track altogether. But... Not really practical unless you go into the higher, the larger scales.
0: Certainly. And Steve in the chat is also saying that shorts are uh, particularly painful with DCC.
1: Well, yeah, because in in DCC, the the booster, each booster is capable of delivering between 5 and 10 amps of current at anywhere from, let's say, 12 to 18 volts. So you're looking at 80, 80 watts, 80 to 90 watts, God. maybe 100 watts. Well, most soldering irons, you know, are only, a pencil iron is only 30, 35 watts, right? And you can melt things with it. If, if a DCC booster detects a short, it is supposed to immediately uh, go into a current limiting mode and, and somehow indicate to the user that something's wrong through beeping or flashing lights or whatnot and it's supposed to recover from the short once the short is removed. It kind of tests the circuit uh, momentarily uh, as long as the short's there. This is built into the system, and you know, when I, one of the things that I, I constantly butt heads about uh, with, with different people is the gauge of the wire that I insist on using for the uh, DCC track bus. I, I insist on a minimum of 14-gauge wire which is essentially the same as your, your house wire uh, to uh, to carry the current around. And uh, the reason I do that is because a, a smaller gauge wire has a set resistance to it. The smaller the gauge, the higher the resistance. If the length of the wire is sufficient so that the, the, the booster does not see the short as a short, it doesn't see it as, as close to zero ohms, it sees it as... Uh, 40 ohms, 50 ohms, 60 ohms, something like that. It's going to just keep pumping the current out. <laughs> it's just <laughs> going to keep pumping it out as as much as it can until you know until it goes into thermal overload or you realize something's wrong by the bad smell. And I I, I have there's people out there who argue with me. There's people out there who who put um, uh, automotive uh, light bulbs in the circuit to try and deal with shorts and frankly, the, all you're doing is defeating the built-in circuit protection that's in the booster and uh, the correct thing to do is to ensure that the, the system properly detects a short condition using either the, the famous coin test uh, or a screwdriver across the tracks or whatever at each location. Uh, everywhere around your layout to make sure that the booster always sees a short as a short and does the right thing. Anything else is uh, is uh, circumventing the safety feature. That's my opinion, and it's not. It's pretty controversial. Not everybody agrees with it.
0: Well, Steve from Chicago in the chat certainly agrees with you. You've gotten a big testified from him, but he is also raising an interesting point. Can we talk a little bit about how one actually maintains engines properly? Sure. So Steve is offering that uh, oil at the right spots and uh, general degree of cleaning. It's just where the um, the air cleaning um, kits that you get for keyboards and things like that in electronics would be useful, as well as uh, oil in particular spots. What what are your particular cleaning methods, Chris?
1: Well, as far as uh, compressed air cleaning, I I don't usually use it. Um, I find that if there's any grit or or uh, particles uh around the the area in question if you're using compressed air you can often drive that those grit particles and abrasives further into the mechanism making it worse uh in the long run so what i tend to do is i disassemble the mechanism i i clean it with uh with a a cloth um and, uh, possibly some isopropyl alcohol, sometimes, not always. Um, I relube stuff with either label oil or, uh, uh, lithium grease, a uh, light lithium grease. Uh, too much grease is, too much grease is bad because it tends to pick up and retain particles and then, uh, push it in, into contact with the gear faces and wear mm. over a long period of time. Uh, as for uh, cleaning the the wheels there's uh, Aero car makes a cleaning solution. you can use googon uh, and a Q tip or a um, piece of uh, paper towel on the track soaked in the cleaner and you, you hold the engine such that part of the running gear is is running over the soaked paper towel and uh, while you apply some power and it, it cleans the wheels in rotation and then switch to the other set of running gear. Uh, one, one suggestion that I was given was to use a uh, clipper oil, hair clipper oil um, on the tracks to discourage corrosion and encourage uh, a good electrical conductivity around the track. Uh, frankly, I, I I've never been a huge proponent of that because the whole purpose behind uh, the 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 metal to metal contact is, is friction to uh to move uh to move the engines around and I, I kind of I tried it a couple of times and it seemed to work it didn't seem to to uh impact the, the tractive force too much now of course you can't goop it on you have to kind of just dampen a, a rag and kind of put it on a, a very light coat. Um, the other suggestion that was made to me, and I thought this was completely mental, was to take a, um, a carpenter's uh, pencil, graphite pencil for uh, the wide, the wide flat ones and actually go around and rub the rail surfaces, the top surface and the inside edge of the rail with this carpenter's pencil. And I thought, this was the most mental thing I'd ever heard in my entire life because graphite being used as a lubricant uh, in some cases. But it it's dry. It's a dry lube. It doesn't attract any further dirt. So I thought about it, and I decided to use Dad's shelf layout as a test bed. And uh, I, I have to say it, it works amazingly well. I couldn't believe it. Um, we didn't have to we didn't have to clean the rails on his shelf layout for I don't know 7 months <laughs> gosh and i yeah i was i was blown away now the guy who gave it to me who gave me this tip a uh, retired radiologist a uh, very clever guy and makes a new micro layout you know something on the order of less than 6 square feet uh engages well he works in GN15 right now, so one to twenty-four, but using HO track. Okay. Uh, quite quite brilliant little uh, scenes, but he's done ON30 and O165 and and whatnot, and he makes a new layout every year. And he takes he puts hundreds of miles, and I mean literally hundreds of miles on his engines and track every year, oh. hundreds of real miles. Yes. And if it if it works for him. I'll, I'll try it. And I was really impressed with the, uh, with the application of the just the carpenter's pencil along the top of the rail on the inside edge.
0: So that begs another question. How frequently should one clean the, the track and the engine? And is it based on the actual amount of use? Can you say after an hour's worth of running, then you definitely need to clean the track and the engine? Do you clean the engine more frequently? What, what, what metrics do you use with regards to this kind of cleaning?
1: Well, let's face it, nobody cleans anything until there's problems. <laughs> I, oh Well, you know, it's human nature, right? I mean, <laughs> we really don't, we don't, we're, we don't do stuff until we're forced to most times. I mean, it's all nice to have a schedule, a maintenance schedule written up and say, I'm going to do this, but really, it, it, how often does it happen? But um, I'm going to have to say again, it depends on uh, how much dust is in your house. Do you have an air cleaner? Does it keep the dust down? Um, are you using a um, Are you using a, uh, a DC or DCC system? Because uh, in the DC system, with the polarity, with the constant polarity on on one rail or the other, if you tend to run too much in one direction, it's funny. You seem to collect. Uh, this is apocryphal. I, I I can't really quantify it. Uh, you seem to collect more crud when you have a a steady charge on one rail or the other and uh in dcc because you've got this differential signal uh i'm not seeing as much in terms of the collection of crud Oxidization of the rail yeah it's it's about the same uh and in the case of the portable units it's it's worse because it's in and out of uncontrolled uh, humidity environments on a regular basis but uh I would say well we have to clean it at every setup so every time we set up the track uh, put the fitter rails in we uh, we start it with the bright boys or other uh, other blocks and go around the tops of the rails and polish them up and you can literally feel the crud uh, on the rails uh, until they they polish smooth Uh, as for cleaning the engines if you have an engine stored in a box between shows it's not going to collect a lot of stuff if it's sitting out on the on the track it's going to collect a little bit more if you're running especially if you've got rolling stock with plastic wheel sets i think the plastic wheel sets seem to have another charge related effect to them and they tend to collect more crud than the metal wheel sets do for some reason i can't again this is this is more Observation and gut gut feeling than than uh, absolutes here, uh, but if you if the plastic wheel sets are collecting crud and then redepositing it, the engine picks up the same crud and it causes uh, intermittent contact with with a variety of uh, with a variety of dilatorious effects. So really, um, cleaning. Clean the engine as frequently as you want. You'll, you'll see very quickly if you, if you run it with uh, the, the paper towel uh, draped over the track and then it's got some chart pins or something holding it in place and you've got enough pickup wheels picking up electrical power to get the mechanism rolling and just move it back and forth over this, this uh, towel soaked with Goo Gone or other uh, cleaner. It has to be plastic safe cleaner because if you're using plastic ties, of course, you don't want them to dissolve. And you don't want any plastic uh, uh, wheel centers in your locomotive's dissolving either, because then of course you're you're in for a whole world of hurt. But I mean, you'll, if you do that once a month or once a week, and you see that uh, once a week you it very rarely any dirt on it, then stretch out your cleaning schedule to once every two weeks or once every three weeks, and you know you'll you'll get a feel for how often it is just by how much you take off in any one. Uh, in any one session so if you clean it, if you try to clean it every week and nothing comes off then you don't have to clean it that frequently unless you're, you're a bear for that sort of uh, uh, rigid uh, schedule
0: so you mentioned your father's shelf layout and we were going to talk a little bit about shelf layouts this evening what have you learned from your father's shelf layout and can you give some description of it?
1: Always read the instructions very clearly. That's what I learned. <laughs> um, we found, a, we found a, uh, a layout plan in a very old issue of Model Railroader that we we kind of liked and uh, when I get out to visit Dad, we usually work on his railroad so it's uh, it's been a project over a number of years and I help out and we have fun and sort of a male bonding thing and everything. So, but, uh, the thing that we hadn't realized at the time was, uh, that in the older, older issues of the magazine, the grid that they marked the plans with was variable depending on the scale. Oh, if it was, if you were going to build it in, well, they didn't talk a lot about end scale, but if you're going to build it in end scale, it was a 12 inch grid. If you're going to build it in HO scale, it was an 18-inch grid, and if you're building an O scale, it was going to be a two-foot grid. Gosh, we <laughs> thought that it was a 12-inch grid because all of the current stuff is, of course, drawn on 12. Inch. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well,
0: the grade-i were a little okay. tighter,
1: and the grades were a little steeper, <laughs> and you know, we we wondered why we were having such a a difficult time with a, with a variety of these things and. Eventually, it dawned on us. It's uh, read the flipping manual, and and of course there we saw the the little tiny note that said if you're building this in HO scale, it will be an 18 inch grid. So, however, since Dad runs a lot of logging equipment, uh, Shays, Climax, Highs, or whatnot, the tighter radius curves and the tight and the steeper grades really haven't proved to be that much of an issue. It's actually... uh, It's a happy coincidence, I suppose. If he was running mainline diesels or steamers or something, he'd have have an issue. But because of the type of uh, equipment that he's chosen to run, it's actually worked out fairly decently. Um, And it was still a fun project to do. I think it was from a 1953 edition of Mala Railroader. I could... I could probably dig it, dig out the actual issue, but it's in it's in a box somewhere still. I haven't unpacked that one. But uh, in terms uh, of I
0: describing was, the layout, in terms of the actual grades that are on it, how, how steep are the grades, and what does the layout depict?
1: The layout depicts uh, an area, a generic area of uh, North America in the say 1910 kind of time frame. And it's 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 arranged as a switchback, so the front the front portion of the shelf layout has a is the lowest uh, level of elevation has a uh, passing siding and a long cosmetic curve in it, and as you progress backwards uh, in the shelf, it rises in grade and it does a switchback to a middle level uh, up above. Increase in elevation about an inch, and then it goes up to a third level at the back of the the shelf, another inch, inch and a half. The grades work out to, I think the worst grade is four and a half percent. Gosh, <laughs> actually, it's 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 not that bad. It's not a long grade. You take a couple of ore cars up at a time, um, which you'd have to do in a. It totally. adds to the- it adds to the operational interest because you can't take a whole train up at once. You have to take up a couple cars at a time sort of thing or you start to slip. But, um, uh, yeah, uh, dad really likes to build things. So, uh, he's been building little structures and little, uh, stations and little warehouses and, uh, back when roundhouse still sold kits or when you could still get a roundhouse kit at the local hobby shop. Uh, we picked up through a variety of sources, uh, two, six, Oh, four, four, Oh, uh, two, three truck shays, a two truck Shay, three climax locomotives, all his kits and dad's assembled all every one of them. And, uh, they all run really. They've actually worn out. He's worn out two of the sheaves completely.
0: Not gonna mention. So,
1: yeah, we <laughs> had to completely re-gear them uh, because the uh, the actual u joints and the uh, the brass gears that we we started out with wore right through. Yeah. They were they were powder inside the gearboxes. So, um, but it's uh, then you have to take it apart and build something new, find some parts, order them, rebuild it, and uh, <laughs> you know, you learn something and you have a lot of fun, but everybody at the shows asks him, well, where'd you get that? Where'd you buy that, that Bachman Shea? And he says, oh, it's a roundhouse Shea. Oh, ready to run? No, built it from a kit. And then they look at him <laughs> like he's mad. like yeah. right? he, He's mad and they say, oh, I've had one of those in a, in a box in the closet for 30 years and I can't put the damn thing together. Uh, so dad says, well, you want to sell it? <laughs> I need another Shay. So, uh, so in terms of
0: just momentum control, I mean, with four and a half percent grades, you're basically the Shay is not only being used to get the get the cars up; it's also being used to slow the cars coming down as well.
1: Well, yes, yeah, the Shay the Shay won't freewheel. It's uh, it's. Uh, worm and wheel arrangement. So if you park it, if you turn the the power off, it stays where it is. It doesn't, it doesn't freewheel down and the climaxes don't and the, the, the River Rossi Heisler doesn't, none of them freewheel like uh like a real engine would. Uh, there are very few model engines that will freewheel. I can think of some uh, Marklin engines, uh, uh, Deutsche Bahn stuff that, that was built that would freewheel, but very few very few built anywhere else, so but yeah it uh, you can't go very fast downhill you can you can slip if you've got too much weight behind the engine it'll actually it'll push it down the hill, but it won't the engine won't stop it. They're pretty light
0: yes, yes, gosh so actually you've given some description of it, but is it a long is it a long straight shelf is it an L shelf how what's the width of it what's the the rough height of it?
1: Uh, the width of it ended up being about 18 inches deep, and the it has about a six-foot run around one. It, it ended up being L-shaped because we built another uh, another extension to it where Dad built a, a switching yard and uh, a pier and a stock pen and uh, a coal trestle and a, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, that, that section's not complete yet, but um, I guess uh, one leg is... Six foot and the other leg is eight foot and probably eighteen inches deep each and uh, there's no continuous run there's no facility for continuous run uh, minimum radius is probably on the order of fifteen inches I yeah. think in the the one curve and the four four oh really has a heck of a time that's about the minimum that four four will go around you'd think it would be. You know it's you think oh it's only a four wheel four driving wheels, but it's such a long wheelbase with the pilot truck and everything it's actually it's worse than 260 getting around that curve gosh
0: so do you limit the do you limit the traffic around the curve in terms of perhaps the the shorter wheelbase shays in that situation oh, or? i i can
1: I can get a shay around a, one of dad's shays I can get around a 10 inch curve
0: yeah i could imagine i could imagine yeah
1: that's that's not a problem uh, but i mean everything we we run it really slowly and uh you know that the everything seems to be under slow orders we go about ten miles an hour even with uh, the the two six o and um all the cars are thirty foot twenty eight foot it's it's an h o standard gauge uh no it's standard gauge uh, Steve. um it's uh It's been an awful lot of fun doing it because it's uh, been a real learning experience for both of us and and just a a fun project that doesn't really have any particular completion date. You know, there's no, (laughs) well, there's, there's no deadline for it, right? We, we, he, he does all sorts of stuff when I'm not there, but when, when I get there, we do, uh, we do wiring stuff. We built a little, uh, uh, mechanisms to bring the, to power all the frogs using slide switches and piano wire and uh, brass tubes through the rail, uh, down through the roadbed to act as a kind of a, uh, a centering spring or a pressure spring, and then brought the mechanism out to the fascia because dad didn't want electrically controlled turnouts, but he wanted power frogs, uh, for the short wheel based locomotives so they wouldn't stall.
2: And, uh,
1: you know the shelf layout format is is great because it's it's in his workshop so he's he's able to have uh tools and raw material and everything stored underneath the layout and still have the layout operational whenever he wants so uh and then there's a workbench on the other side of the room with a drill press and a vice and all that good stuff so he can he can build stuff or he can run trains or you know Sometimes after dinner, we'll we'll go down and just run trains for an hour or two hours and shoot the breeze and maybe have a little uh, little music on the background, maybe enjoy a homemade pint of beer or something. Very uh, all very uh, pastoral.
0: Very nice, very nice. And in terms of operations, I'm assuming there was originally an operational narrative and then he added uh, an extra section. I mean, what what kind of operations can you get on the layout?
1: Well, I'd like to say that there was a grand scheme at the start of things, but really it it was more of a place to experiment with, with structures and a place to run home built uh, or kit built cars and, and locomotives and just shunt cars happily with no particular, uh, like it's not a, timetable or a train order or even a car card operation you know the stock car goes to the stock pen and goes to the slaughterhouse and uh the milk car goes to the the creamery and and goes to the wharf and the coal car comes from the tipple and comes down the switchback and goes around the curve and goes to the trestle to you know it's all very simple sort of source and destination um not uh not a lot to remember, not a lot to think about, just sort of a common sense um, common sense approach. But we have a lot of fun with it.
0: Terrific, terrific. So in terms of the shelf layout, I mean, this was something we were going to discuss this evening. In terms of the idea that you don't need a lot of space, you don't need a lot of money, you may need quite a bit of time, and you may need a little bit of inspiration, but basically the shelf layout is the perfect... Introduction or perhaps reintroduction back into the hobby, and this is really what you're describing with regards to your father's layout. Do you recommend folks just go and, and find old issues of uh, Model Railroad or something like that to get their inspiration from their shelf, uh, for shelf layouts? Do you? I mean, wh- your father got the inspiration from the Model Railroad article specifically. Was it something where you or he were just flipping through and saw it, or? Did you go specifically for a shelf layout to be inspired by?
1: Well, uh, it was just more of a more of a, a happy coincidence that we found it. We were looking through and trying to come up with a, a plan and discussing various possibilities, and this one just appealed overall. And we seemed to have all the raw materials at the time, all the uh, turnouts and enough track to, to go ahead and make a go of it uh, without running down to the rather poorly equipped local hobby shop that dad is forced to, to, uh, endure. But, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that we set out to find a particular, particularly themed or particularly arranged layout. It just happened to, to fit our mindset at the moment. Now, would I recommend going through the old MRs to find shelf layouts? Mm, probably not. And the reason is that there are so much uh, current publications available that are of really high quality and are really well thought out from a, a an operational and scenic standpoint where instead of being a novelty uh, where shelf layouts were something of a novelty in the, in the older days um, they're more of, a, of the raison d'etre these days and people like, uh, people like uh, Lance Mindheim and uh, and his contemporaries are doing amazing shelf layouts. Uh, John Armstrong has done some terrific books describing shelf layouts. Uh, I'm trying to think of the English fellow whose name escapes me. Ian Rice has done some tremendous books on, on shelf layout design, small, compact, and something was uh, was one of them uh where he did a tremendous selection of layouts and uh now he gets beaten up sometimes by people saying well when they try to duplicate his his uh his track plans they they can't manage it with uh, with uh, commercial turnouts it doesn't work they don't fit and uh, I have to defend his designs because he will uh, either modify turnouts by shortening the, the point end uh, or uh, shortening the, uh, the diverging route to, uh, to fit it in or he will use the designs based on standard British uh, track laying practice by their, their plate layers so they are not for necessarily for the beginner but they are excellent track plans with really good backstories and narratives, and well thought-out arrangements of uh, of the trackage and surrounding uh, environs uh, based on prototypical practice. So, uh, but the older the older magazine articles were, let's say more off the cuff. Um, they they weren't they weren't as well thought out and certainly uh, not as uh, I think not as satisfying in the long term. If if we had been looking for operation, uh, Dad and I have been looking for operation in this layout. I'm sure we could we could come up with something in the car card and waybill uh, realm that would that would suit, but it would be a bit of a stretch to 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 make it you know, really nice and neat. If it would be better if it was the premise from the beginning was for operations. So but still, uh for what we do with it, it's a lot of fun. Um unfortunately dad's dad's kind of uh distracted at the moment by uh Welsh slate quarries and uh we're we're actually we've been working on another another shelf layout to go to shows. <laughs> It's a seven mm O scale uh, on HO gauge tracks, so O sixteen five. And I built a chassis for a uh, one of the Taliban railway locos and uh, dad built the superstructure for it and that's running and he did a he took a Bachmann O N thirty porter and anglicized it with a bunch of parts from uh, key kits in the UK new cab with a spectacle plate and uh, like Bagnall style stack and smoke box. Did a great job on it. Works really well. The Bachman engine runs, uh, runs a treat. And he's been building uh, little tipper wagons and slate wagons and rubbish wagons and, and all that. And we've got two of the uh, baseboards made that runs about two feet wide by four, uh, eight feet long total. And there's a slight grade going up and a passing loop and a three-track yard and a little engine shed location. And there'll be a standard gauge interchange. we got a Cooper Craft uh, uh, standard gauge coal wagon, uh, which looks great. And there's a freight house with a elevated narrow gauge track. And the standard gauge track goes inside the little freight house. So quite a neat little little layout that we're working on there so uh <laughs> it just we just get off on a tangent and we kind of go with it.
0: well it sounds like you're certainly inspiring steve in the chat room and you're certainly inspiring me as well we should make a standard opener that we suspect duncan may call in but then again he may not but my understanding is that duncan is uh exploring quite a special layout, the Nevada, what is it called, the Nevada County Short Line, or something like that?
1: Oh, the Nevada County Narrow Gauge, yeah, that's, uh, I was looking forward to a report from that, that was going to be very interesting.
0: What I, more questions from uh, from Chris would you like to answer? Uh,
1: well, Chris also asked, um, how do I know if I'll use all of the functions? Uh, the use of the functions in, the, in DCC, sorry, we're jumping around here, but the use of the functions in DCC, really is going to depend on what you're trying to do with the model. Um, In general terms, if the cost of a system that supports eight functions versus the cost of a system that supports 28 functions is, you know, 20 bucks or something, then go for the one with more functions because if you decide to increase the scope of what you're modeling in the future, then you won't have to buy up, uh, upgrade your system. You'll, you'll already have the capability to to uh, support the functionality but I mean the extra functions aside from uh, if in a non sound locomotive you've got lights uh, direction i mean direction the motor control is already built in that's not considered function but just lighting directional lighting and uh, maybe some lighting effects but if you as soon as you get into sound you've got uh, uh, in the case of steam, you've got chuff and uh, uh, cylinder cocks and uh, blowdown and water fill and uh, stoking sounds, brake squeal, uh, the coupler clank, uh, the, the the headlight generator. I mean, all of these things are, are able to be to be turned on or off uh, by a function control, or they can be made automatic. Um, but if you get a, uh, let's say you get a sound decoder with a number of functions that exceeds what your uh, controllers can manage, if you want to actuate those other functions, you won't be able to unless you can remap something in decoder down to a lower, like alias it to a different function button, lower in the, in the scale so that you can actually turn it off and on. But then the complexity of what you're trying to do goes up and you might kind of layer things on top of one another that you don't want to do. But uh, what are you trying to do actually? Are you trying to model something that's real and are you going to use bell and whistle signals for all of your shunting and mainline activities when you when you double head locomotives? Are you going to insist that you can't... Uh, Electri- electronically consistent together, you actually have to have two throttles and when you speed up, you have to hit the whistle so many times and the next guy has to answer with one toot. Uh, do you going to you gonna do Rule 17 headlight dimming? Or are you going to have uh, notching in your diesel engines? Is it going to be manual or automatic? I mean, there's so many things to consider. It's better to just have the capability there because the uptick in price at the, uh, at the outset really isn't that much more. I think the new Bachman uh, or Atlas uh, DCC is, uh, is capable of doing that right off the bat. I mean it, it's got 28 function control and so does the new Digitrax, and uh, so does the new NCE so really getting something with less capability is not, not recommended at this point. If you're starting out don't get the absolute basic system get the mid-range system, and you'll find that you'll probably never outgrow it. Uh, you probably will, and especially if you get something like the Lens or the Digitracks, um, you can simply add more, more of the same to increase your capability for the number of trains you run or extra functions like fast clock and signaling and transponding and all that good stuff.
0: But in terms of the shelf layout, uh, I mean, do you think, how many, how many engines do you think you'd be running on the shelf layout simultaneously at any given, at any given time?
1: Uh, you mean on Dad specifically?
0: Or any well, use your father's as an example. How many would he run simultaneously at any given time?
1: Well, we tend to run one at a time, but we can run, we can run two at a time. Um, because we do kind of the brakeman engineer sort of thing. Uh, and Dad's Dad's layout runs on DC. He just doesn't care to go into the complexity of trying to get a lot of these older steam engines to run in in DCC because it requires, in some cases, major surgery to to make the decoder work. Um, And he's not of a technical level that if something went wrong, he'd be able to repair it himself. Uh, So... You know he's a smart guy, but the computer as soon as it has ones and zeros in it he kind of backs off it's it's not his his uh, pigeon so um, but what I found is that the smaller the layout, the more you benefit from d c c and the reason is that when you're trying to uh, block off a layout for say two cab control uh, in d c if you want to do uh, cooperative operations in a yard or you want to switch uh, nearby something at the main line, you kind of have to put an awful lot of electrical uh, in, uh, isolation sections in. And as you're moving from section to section, you tend to... Uh, it's almost like you're playing, uh, pulling out the stops in a, in a big church organ, right? You're constantly flipping toggles to route power from your cab to a certain track block, and with DCC, that largely disappears. And uh, so on a small layout where the blocks would be really, really short, that's a tremendous uh, benefit. Um, I've I've thought that what I'm going to end up with here at the new place is, is actually a shelf layout, and I would set it up with DCC, and I would have the ability to have three... Three operators running at once: uh, one sort of eastbound, one westbound, and one managing the staging area, which would be uh, uncenic and and out of sight, probably in the in the back room sort of thing. Uh, and I would build it at a level where I could have my machine tools and and uh, whatnot underneath that, so it would be close to eye level when standing. So, sixty inches. Probably off the ground, and uh, but I would go DCC simply for the the features of sound, the features of uh, lighting effects, the control level. Because I would add some some uh, computer features just because I like that sort of thing, and uh, the fact that I don't have to play play the the church organ when I'm trying to move things around. So, a shelf layout, brilliant candidate for DCC. Uh, you get all the benefits and a, a tenth of the wiring headaches. Uh, as long as you maintain sufficient uh, sufficiently sized bus wiring to ensure that the signal gets where it needs to be, and you clean your track on a regular basis, then you're good. You're good as gold.
0: Yes, I mean certainly that's my sense that a shelf layout probably would be an ideal candidate, particularly as you say with two or three operating engines and and operators, obviously, operating them. In terms of the the depths of DCC, I I hear through the the podcast various uh, folk talking about USB control and these kind of things, the computerization. You touched on that uh, with regards to your friend locally who has a kind of central control deck. How much computerization can you get into with DCC, and would you recommend that also for a shelf
1: layout? you can go as far as you want. You can have every aspect of the system uh, controlled by DCC with no human intervention, Uh, or you can have, you can simply use the computer interface as a really easy graphical uh, WYSIWYG interface to program your decoders. Uh, And that is a tremendous benefit when you get into the sound equipped decoders that have, dozens or scores of, of configuration variables that have to be set to customize the uh, the sound and the motor control uh, parameters and instead of s- step entering stuff on your on your throttle picking a CV a configuration variable and then manually typing in the register value and doing that over and over again you can set up uh, uh, for a speed table on, on the computer, you can set up a graphical curve that's uh, that's logarithmic or hyperbolic, and you can push one button and it will program all of the related variables into the engine for you and enable it, the speed table. Uh, you can uh, do all your customizations. If you have a fleet of engines, you can program one locomotive, get it working absolutely perfectly, save that template file out and copied into every other locomotive in your fleet uh, and have them all operate in virtually identical manner. Um, good grief. You can do uh, uh, detection of uh, where the locomotive is, or where a locomotive is in your layout, and through transponding, you can determine what the locomotive's number is, and therefore You can do consist information. You could do almost like an automatic car control system with uh, RFIDs and interface that and have scanners and detect things shunting in and out. You can uh, control all your signals based on transponding and location information. You can do... It just goes on and on and on. But, uh, you know, are you... At that point, why don't you just get train simulator software and and you know, I mean it's it's not at all the same thing in in reality because you haven't built any of the models in train simulator and, and whatnot and it's it's not as tactile obviously, but you can go as far as you want with it or you can just use it as a as a tool to aid in the management of your decoders and uh and their features and I think that ultimately is is the, the thing that most people will do is to especially if you have Digitrax, the new Digitrax sound bug decoders which require uh, a computer interface to allow you to put the custom audio uh, patches in to give you exactly what you want in terms of your, your sound uh, and also ESU, uh, the lock sound decoders, have a computer interface, their own computer interface, for loading uh, digital sound patches into them. Uh, local buffer USB allows you an interface to the Digitracks system, and you can run virtual throttles on the screen. Uh, so you can set up uh, two or three throttles with, say, a touchscreen or whatnot, and you could do uh, in a yard... Uh, or dispatcher's uh, desk, you could have uh, half a dozen throttles on the screen and do all your CTC control uh, for your layout because there's even uh, uh, Decoder Pro software has a Panel Pro Edition which gives you all the CTC uh, icons for uh, control of your turnouts and signals. So it looks just like a traditional CTC panel at a, at a real railroad. Uh, it, it just goes on and on. There's so much to, there's so much you can do. It's it's overwhelming, really.
0: It sounds overwhelming. Certainly, Steve in the chat uh, seems to have computerized all his layout and recommends it to all. He uses uh, Decoder Pro, uh, which is uh, freeware.
1: Well, uh, uh, Chris, uh, Chris in New Zealand had also asked whether he can do self-installation of decoders on on his uh, engines. And I think that yeah, you can you can do self-installation uh, of decoders, and it's going to depend on a couple of factors. First is is your own skill level, your mechanical electrical skills, and each type of engine, uh, each manufacturer has uh, a certain methodology for the way that they they design and build their engines, and some of them are really lend themselves to DCC installations and some of them are a complete nightmare and you're better off to sell it and go buy another engine. Some can be incredibly difficult to disassemble and some of them have no spare room inside them due to extra weight or just the way the mechanism is is built or they have split pickups. Older steam engines used to have uh, kind of left rail picks up from the from the tender and the right wheel picks up from the engine and the other ones are isolated and if one of them was off the track you you lost all all your power but you, you you're going to need to to have some some basic tools uh, you know soldering iron uh, proper flux and solder uh, resin core lead-free uh, a 30 watt pencil iron will do most of your work um, if you have a temperature controlled soldering station, it's a luxury, but they're down in price and they're, they're wonderful to use because they, they maintain their, their temperature and they have a nice little place to set the iron and clean the iron and set your temperature and everything on it. But, uh, you know, wire stripper, uh, yeah. and if you have to start clearing out space inside the engine, like I did an end scale install for, uh, for a guy in a high hood Jeep and I had to cut away part of the, part of the, uh, the frame itself because there was just no room inside the, the hood to put anything. And I had to go down and get the smallest lens decoder that was available at the time to fit into it. And you end up using stuff like a Dremel tool with, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you, you get the cutoff disc, uh, or the the carbide burrs and you start cutting into this this white metal i mean you have to you have to disassemble absolutely everything you have to take the motor out the gears out until you're just down to the frame mark it very carefully and and uh, start cutting but you'll have a hacksaw and files and you'll use a sharpie marker to get everything uh, marked out for you and then when you start to put everything together you've got to... Insulate it. So you're going to be using stuff like uh, Kapton tape, which is a very thin, uh, kind of an amber-colored tape that's uh, that's used in the electronics industry. You can get it at surplus stores and electronic supply houses and mail order and whatnot. And it's terrific uh, uh, tape for for insulating. Not like the black uh, electrical tape, uh, electricians' tape, it's, which is thick and tends to Uh, curl up on you over time or or the glue tends to come off it and leave you with a a problem. Uh, You need some shrink tube you can get it same place as you get the Kapton tape and use a heat gun or just a soldering iron or a lighter or a match or something to shrink it around the electrical connections you make so that you don't short out against uh, the inside of the, the frame or a motor lead or anything uh it would be really handy to have a decoder tester of some kind and Digitrax sells their LT1 tester uh as a separate item which is good because i lost mine at the last show and I have to get a new one Gosh. but uh, yeah, it's it's a very small thing it's about the size of an ethernet jack just yes. the jack itself and i think it it went flying somewhere during a the putting the skirting on the modules or something i'm not sure um Having a multimeter is pretty much mandatory for doing uh, continuity checks and measuring resistance values for your doing your lighting and uh, oh checking the current level for the stall current on the motor. Uh, there's a very, very cool tool out called the Railroad Amp amp Meter and uh, it can be bought in two or three different uh, versions and it, it will detect... Uh, DCC values, like if the DCC is present on the track, it'll read the voltage level so that you can make sure that all of the boosters or all of the power managed sections are all putting out the same voltage, and it can also it comes with flying leads. You can, have, you can use it as a voltmeter as well. Very cool tool. Uh, and remember not to overheat any of the components. Uh, the soldering iron gets really hot, and uh, you can sometimes overheat the motor leads and cause them to pull away from the inside of the motor, or uh, you ruin the the coil dope on the inside for the for the coils, and then you get a short inside the motor, and then you're then you're snookered. Uh, and uh, all electronic devices run on smoke, and when you <laughs> let when you let the smoke out, they don't work anymore. So don't let the smoke out.
0: And I, I've been to electronic stores trying to buy the smoke, and I can't find it anywhere.
1: No, well, Radio Shack is, is gone up here. We we lost all our Radio Shacks a number of years ago, so you can't buy the smoke in the little bottles anymore to put it back in. Uh, and, Steve, you're absolutely right about electrostatic stuff, uh, especially when you're working. A lot of people do uh, most of their train hobby work in the wintertime in the house where it's really dry and you're always, you know, shocking the cat when you go to pet it or, you know whatever. Um, when you're working with any electronic devices, any static discharge that you have can damage the components. So if you're handling the electrical leads off the decoder um, and you have any sort of charge on you, you may not damage it this time, you may not damage it next time, but static discharge damages a cumulative effect on electronic components, especially the CMOS-style chips. So. If you are doing a lot of installs or you're doing a lot of experimenting, you could damage your, your um, decoders over time. So what you want to do is, uh, same place you can get the cap-, cap on tape, same place you get shrink tubing, you can usually get a little wrist strap that's, uh, that you put around one wrist, and basically the, there's a coiled lead that goes down with an alligator clip on it, and you're supposed to put, hook that to whatever connects to the cold water pipe in your house, the electrical ground, right? Certainly. Just like, yeah, and, uh, you know, you can pick up the, uh, the, uh, ground, uh, the ground screw on the center of your uh, electrical outlet or uh, any other solution, or you can run, simply run a piece of uh, uh, copper wire from your, your cold water over to your workbench, uh, for your cold water pipe over to your workbench, and that'll give you the same ground point reference that everything else in the house has. So uh, hopefully you won't cause any any damage to your decoders that way. Same thing as uh, Steve says. Uh, same thing when you're working on a PC. I know a lot of people don't do it. It's just gotten out of uh, out of fashion, I guess.
0: I'll talk a little bit about my uh, experiences through the past couple of weeks, actually, with regards to my shelf layout. So having listened to uh, this evening's discussions, basically, I've made every mistake possible um, in terms of using uh, what I thought was relatively solid lumber, what I thought was relatively established joints, but actually just with regards to, I mean, I'm doing it all um, in engage. gauge uh, but even the the size screws that I'd used that I thought were small enough, I ordered um, a dozen of the Caboose Industries uh, hard switches, uh, but in turn actually ordered the wrong ones, the ones without the um, frog throws uh, included the um, connections for them. But However, having looked at the ones with the um, electrical stuff included, there isn't actually enough space on the shelf layout to include them. They're quite a bit larger, and some of the... Uh, turns and positions of the turnouts are such that they just wouldn't fit in. So I laid, well I had the track all laid out, and my plan was originally to put down um, tiny wooden spikes to hold it all in, because I noticed that there was certainly a little bit of travel. The shelf is um, on an exposed exterior wall in terms of temperature, that is less of a concern than the kind of airflow around it, uh, and that's caused a little bit of warping in the wood. so my thought this evening is maybe I should uh, scrap the solid wood, take what track I have left, and actually go back to what you were describing, Chris, with regards to um, the uh, the plywood. But anyway, I started laying it with the tiny screws, um, and then uh, tragedy struck after the first uh, two and a half feet worth of laying when I had established the third, I think, um, Caboose Industries turnout throw uh which after i' I drilled all the holes the connective holes to the um, shelf in order to get them to accept the slightly larger format screws um, but even with that uh one of the turnout throws split and uh kind of sharded um in a rather interesting fashion so i have to my decision is actually probably to hard um hard turn the turnout because it just goes on a, a main line which i won 't be using anyway it 's just a decorative main line. Uh, But at that point I realised I had had put out all the Christmas lights last weekend um, and I'd come in having done all of that and then attempted to start on the shelf layout. Uh, So I found kind of an hour and a half into it that I was probably too tired to do anything else and I needed to do some replanning and rethinking with regards to it. It was interesting because the layout, the actual track plan I'd designed in software... When I came to actually putting in the um, turnout throws, I realized that the software had not allowed me any space for the turnout throws and then did a kind of strategic redesign on the spot. But looking at it more and more, um, and particularly with regards to my kind of decision with regards to N, I do have hankerings to go back to HR. And I'm looking here at the... um, the Kato switcher that I purchased, which I really like, uh, and have been using, it's uh, a EMD NW2 in the Union Pacific colours. And I was thinking it would be so much nicer, um, to have it as DCC and HO, uh, but I'll need to break it to the wife rather easily. I'll also need to break to the wife rather easily, taking down the existing shelf layout and putting in, um, I, I guess, uh, what, what would you call it, kind of a, uh, a ladder skeleton spline, um, with, plywood on top, but I think also that would give me the ben- benefit of a degree of undulation uh, which I haven't had with this particular layout. So I'm debating just as an exercise finishing laying all the track and actually operating on it for a few months just to uh, to make a few more mistakes and a few more things to learn from and it's sufficiently solid, uh, I've got a join with multi screws at the centre um, that I could probably take it apart. and store it, um, and then replace the shelf with a, another shelf potentially in HOV. It's interesting thinking about L, L shelf layouts and the maximum, uh, a minimum turn radius possible in them. Uh, and this is certainly something that I considered when I designed this one and when I designed the next one, which will have the same form factor uh, because it's, it seems to be the perfect space for me in terms of just above my desktop computer and also in an area where I can do um, twitching in the evening and work on it in the evening. However, I'm, it's, it's funny because Steve agreed with you, um, Chris, with regards to uh, the eye height. And mine, I think, is uh, 50 inches from memory from the ground. So it's slightly lower than eye height uh, for me. But even I'm finding it slightly too high. I think for... Perhaps you need to have the ability to take things up and down or get up on ladders or what have you, but even in operating terms, I'd like to have a slightly better angle view down. I mean, perhaps it's just a personal preference thing. We do have cats in the house as well, which was my consideration with keeping it at the height that it's at. Um, But I don't know. I'm finding it interesting just in terms of learning experiences and also the quintessential kind of problem of never doing anything too technical when you're too tired just to have it done and these kind of things so the patience aspect I'm, I'm reinforcing um, but in terms of the actual caboose industry throws um, I don't know in N-scale I, I'm having second thoughts about them uh, although they do give very firm uh, throws uh, and I, but I think in probably HO they would be considerably better and when when I redo it in HO, I'll uh, certainly get the ones with the um, the electronics inside to do the the frogs specifically.
1: I gotta say I I you know uh, I don't know if this is the forum to 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 make uh, to cast dispersions I guess, but I have had zero luck with Caboose Industries ground throws, uh, especially the ones with the electrical contacts on them. Um, they they just—I've uh, never been able to get them to stay ro- uh, together long enough to to switch power reliably. And I mean, so if you
0: had the same—if you had the same structural problem where they kind of internally split once you—is that the problem yeah. that you are describing?
1: Yeah, they just come apart. I—I I, they're—they're overscale in every scale except O, I think they they're they they're way too big for for <laughs> line side stuff frankly, I would be tempted for the shelf layout to simply put some uh either the uh the door bolt solution with uh, a uh spring and a piece of fishing line that Joe fugate uses in his uh his layout uh, along the face uh, or uh, something like Dad and I did with the, uh, uh, a slide switch underneath the turnout on a little block of uh, wood with a piece of piano wire bent in a Z coming up through the, the roadbed and coming into the, the uh, center of your uh, headstock bridle to uh, flip the, the turnout back and forth and that way you can power frogs or or not and the slide acts as a positive, stop one way or the other the slide switch so but yeah the caboose i i i i don't like to sp- to speak ill of a company but <laughs> i just i can't i can't sit here and let you do it
0: yeah no it certainly gets a hand waving not a direct thumbs down because i have three of them set that seem to work okay but i the other thing with the um with the little Union Pacific switcher that I have, is that it doesn't matter whether or not the the central frogs are powered or not. So I was thankful in that circumstance, at least for the stuff that I've been doing so far. But yes, I don't think I would uh, use them again. And Steve in the chat is recommending door bolts, and I think you put micro switches behind the door bolts to actually power the frogs. Um, And I think I might actually go with that. I think that sounds like exactly the right kind of solution, although within you'd be dealing with very, very small... Door bolts in terms of the shift, I guess.
1: Well, what what uh, well use a use a like a, a the spring out of a uh, a click pen mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, kind of give tension on it and it's Joe goes into great detail of how how he builds the the mechanism in in one of his videos and it's it's fairly straightforward and the door bolt the throw is actually taken up by some play in the spring and a and a bit of piano wire but. Um, if what what brand of turnouts are you going to use if you go to HO Tom?
0: That is to be decided.
1: <laughs> That's okay. a very
0: good question. But I the more that I think about it, particularly doing it in HO, I think I will probably end up with uh, flex track with the potential of hand laid turnouts. I think that would be the the way that I would go. Just because in the, in the size shelf that I have getting the right size turnouts and also the right kind of eccentricities in, in turnouts, I think it'd be a lot easier to just buy a jig and make a number of failed attempts at hand-blade turnouts and then try one myself, I mean, in terms of actually getting it right. Because the, the eccentricity of the space, and particularly if I start putting, and this is an interesting question back with regards to your father's layout, how did you find the, the turnouts in the space, particularly after you shrunk, I mean, if you shrunk the dimensions, then you must have ended up with some very strange turnouts.
1: Well, the interesting thing about uh, scale changes is that uh, elevations don't change and uh, turnout frog numbers don't change. So we used uh, number four uh, atlas turnouts pretty much everywhere uh, through the whole layout. And uh, the issue there was that... uh, that the connecting tracks between turnouts, the uh, frog to frog distances and everything kind of got shorter so that in certain areas you didn't have a car length between, between uh, fouling points anymore. So it just makes, you have to plan your moves better. You can't leave things in all the spaces you could on the, in the real drawing. You have to, you have to, Go back to the the run around track in front of the station and and pick up another car and bring it over and take it up the switchback sort of thing. It's 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 not horrible. It doesn't stop the show, but uh, I'm just thinking that if if you were to use maybe uh, Pico turnouts, they have the the over center spring on the uh, on the points, and you can just flick them with your finger, and you don't need any mechanism at all uh, uh, external to that. Right.
0: Very good. Very good. Okay, well, that's that's certainly a, a way to speak. I've, with regards to Atlas, I've had no problem with Atlas and N. In fact, the, the track has been oh. the best part. Um, but uh, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. And it would almost lend itself to a kind of British theme as well, if I speak. Uh, okay, all very good, Chris. All very good. Oh, yeah, but
1: if you're going to do a British theme, you have to get bullhead rail and chairs and then, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: certainly, certainly. But anyway I've, I, once, once i 've completely destroyed this layout in front of me, I then have to do the repitch and the rebudget for the wife, so management approval will uh, will need to go on but i mean I think, I think I've probably got a, at least four months more damage to do, although I have to agree with you the caboose industry um, the caboose industry turnout throws that's not been a particular success, and even in duncan 's absence, Duncan when I met him probably what six months ago now, gave mm-hmm. me one of his particular servo turnout throws. I think if I move to uh, HR, I may consider looking at his servo stuff, if nothing more, because I think it gives me more kind of eccentric possibilities in terms of where I could actually put the, uh, the turnouts and these kind of things if they weren't all uh, physically accessible or manually operated. The stuff that I found with regards to positioning turnouts here, and this is interesting with regards to your father's layout. I'm just in my own mind. I envisage most of the turnouts actually being in in closer. Um, so I guess on the lower the lower two track levels, are the turnouts at the back of the layout, and are you using the the door handle configuration to actually throw those turnouts at the back of the layout?
1: Uh, yeah, there's a couple of turnouts at the very top of the. The uh, the layout and the interesting thing is as you going up an elevation you don't have a straight shot with the uh, with the uh, any sort of actuator. Uh, what I did is I went to a local hobby shop that caters to the RC plane uh, RC aircraft uh, crowd and I picked up a bunch of clevises and yokes and bell cranks and uh, braided sl- uh, braided cable and sleeve. And little uh, P clips and whatnot, and made up all sorts of little mechanisms and and uh, redirects to get the control from the fascia up to wherever the the micro switch or sort of the slide switch underneath the turnout was so there's a couple of really convoluted ones, but the majority of them are fairly straightforward just a uh, a threaded threaded rod. Um, like an aileron or elevator control rod from the uh, from the switch uh, right out to the front of the, the, the fascia. And most of them were fairly easy to arrange. If you're going to keep everything on one level, you could, you could do that sort of approach, and it would be really straightforward. You don't have to go and buy stuff at the hobby shop either. If you unfold a, a wire coat hanger and use a pair of linesman's pliers and a little uh, threading die, you can make up your own. Your own control rods as well, right? Certainly. And just uh, epoxy on some uh, small wooden uh, drawer knobs or something on the end of them, paint them up. Interesting. Well, it doesn't have to. This hobby does not have to be expensive. There's an awful lot that can be done with found materials or recycled materials, reclaimed materials. Uh, one of the uh, most popular things I've seen lately for Kind of modular, or portable, or quick layouts is to just get a hollow core door and throw it onto the onto some shelf brackets, and you're done. You've got your your uh, your baseboard is ready to lay track on. Uh, if you were to take apart a bifold uh, uh, door, you'd have what uh, 12 feet of layout, uh, 16 inches wide, in what a couple of minutes. Uh, the only problem with hollow core doors is, of course, there's no uh, there's no internal structure, or there's a foam internal structure, like a piece of extruded uh, styrofoam. So when you're trying to drill through for your electrical wiring runs or your uh, turnout throw mechanisms, you you sometimes end up with not you, you drill the hole and then try to put the wire down through, and it kind of gets caught up in the In the insulation in the middle, and it doesn't make it through to the other hole on the other door on the other skin of the door. But by and large, if you were using, uh, let's say, pico turnouts, and you didn't have to put any mechanism through, and you're just going to finger flick the turnouts, then you're done. You're you've got a fairly stable, uh, lightweight base that goes up in minutes, Uh, and you don't have to build any structure yourself. If you wanted to put a fascia along the front you could get a couple of strips of masonite and uh, screw or glue them to the front uh, to give you uh, a little bit of depth and dress it up but uh, other than that you've done quickly
0: in terms of uh, Chris Shorthouse's questions have we covered everything he asked
1: oh good grief no no there's much more (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: uh, well he he asked a number of really good questions and and um, you know I also had mentioned to you at the I'd like to go and deal with more of Chris's questions. I'd also mentioned to you at the the show last week, uh, somebody came up at about ten minutes before show closing, and he'd never never been to a train show. He never been to, uh, wasn't involved in the hobby, but was really interested in it. And uh, I'd given him my my email address to contact me because we were about to knock down and, and start packing up, and they were going to kick all the punters out at that time anyway. So. Uh, he did get in touch with me a number of days later and he had spoken to a member of the large, uh, O scale club, uh, like the, uh, traditional two rail O scale club. that has been around for about 50 years in the city here. And, uh, he got the impression from this fellow that, uh, that you needed a huge basement, uh, and a huge investment in time and money to get involved in the hobby. And he was a bit turned off by this thinking that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't participate in the hobby at this at this point and i thought that was really unfair and i'd like to kind of use the the shelf layout discussion and modular layouts and micro layouts as a as a way to debunk that that whole um, as i said mortgaging your house to be part of the, the model railway hobby i don't think that's necessary and i don't think it's uh, it's good advice or good uh, good statement to have been made to this newcomer, uh, who was who expressed an interest.
0: Certainly, what you're describing, with regards to shelf layouts and your discussion associated with your father's shelf layout, but this idea of the micro layout. I mean, you described a friend. With, what were the what were the dimensions? Was it? Four feet by six feet, or three feet by six feet. What what defines a micro layout, and is it typically just a, a round around with maybe a, a few sidings, or I mean, what what would you classify a micro layout as being?
1: Well, the, I guess the traditional, or it's traditional, as a, it's not that old a, a concept really. The micro layouts are generally accepted to be less than less than four square feet. Right, um, pizza top of, like a pizza box or a, uh, a handy panel size from the from the uh, local hardware store, which is you know either two by two feet or two by four feet, uh, and it's considered like a completely self-contained layout. There's no tracks that lead off the edge to connect to something else, and uh, seems to have its own unifying theme. And I've seen them in every scale from Z up to G scale. And uh, a lot of them are, are roundy round, uh, continuous run. Uh, a number of them have clever switching operations uh, built into them. A number of them can, can do complete operational sessions. Uh, there's a premise and a, uh, some of them have sound built in. Uh, I gotta say there's, there's a magazine out there called, uh, the industrial and narrow gauge railway modeling review, and it's published out of, uh, Wales. It's a quarterly and it is one of the most amazing magazines I have ever seen in this hobby. Um, well worth the money to get it, uh, largely, uh, UK and European prototypes, but it's all industrial narrow gauge and, uh, critters and steam steam trains and electric trams and military railways. And, uh, but the, the subjects covered in this, in this magazine on a, a quarterly basis, uh, a lot of them involve micro layouts or, or small layouts or shelf layouts and portables or something that's stored in the airing cupboard or the jam cupboard, uh, uh brought out at the weekend. And, uh, these small layouts you can completely scenic completely electrify they can you can run them DC DCC battery Um, you can run them under uh, catenary wire you can do two rail you can do three way rail with shoe pickup you can experiment with so many different aspects because you're not committing to a a basement filling empire with this uh, with this uh, with your premise you can explore any theme, whether it's logging, mining, um, uh, a short line, a, a brewery, like we talked about, uh, uh, industries that had their own small tram tracks and uh, possibly a, a number of specialized cars or processes that were, that were done, you can detail them to the nth degree and, uh, or super detail them indeed. And they're they're portable. They're man portable. You can pick them up with uh, one hand in many cases and just walk out with them to uh, to a show or a, uh, a gathering or your friend's place or uh, take them out of the uh, the front room at, at night and put them away in the cupboard. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And if you get sick of them or you find yourself going down the wrong path, you can you can turn around and, and scrap the whole thing for or just strip the track off for very little. Expense uh, because it's just a, s- a small plot of land that you set aside for this. Uh, Carl Carl Arendt has an extensive website on micro layouts. He's done a lot of work to popularize the concept of micro layouts, um, and that's uh, it's. If you look for Carl Arendt A E sorry A R E N D T uh, on Google, you'll find him right away. There's a local group up here that call themselves Narrow Gauge Madness and they go to many of the shows and they're made up of a group of people who build nothing but micro layouts uh, in everything, as I said, from, from Z scale to, to G scale and uh, with a, lot of, a lot of them are being done in ON30 right now because it's just got so many neat little critters, the little 040 uh, Davenport and uh, the porters and, uh, and what not. So when you say uh, G
0: scale, uh, is it one, is it a comparable scaled micro layout 4G or is it a similar similar dimensional layout with G going on it in some way?
1: Yeah, the the latter. It's a similar similar like a two by two foot or two by three foot or whatnot with half inch to the foot models on it. Uh, huge figures. Um, you know, die-cast cars that are incredibly detailed, motorcycles, people, uh, buildings with, you know, the windows done down to the cracks and the caulking. And, uh, and uh, the, the thing that you, you do as you move up in scale is to move down in prototype, um, you know, uh, something like a Rushton or a, a Hudson uh, diesel mechanical engine they're only about six foot or eight foot long in real life. So that's only in in half inch scale, it's only four inches long, you know? Uh, And you can easily motorize that with, uh, with, uh, you know, an AHO mechanism, four wheel mechanism. And there's some, even some O scale mechanisms that'll work, uh, ON30 mechanisms that'll work, which is HO gauge. So not much difference, but, um, there are a number of uh, companies that cater uh, cater to the 7mm market in England for industrial prototypes, and you can ma- uh, repurpose their mechanisms, and uh, what you end up with is this uh, tremendously detailed scene with uh, a railroad theme associated with it. And it's, that stuff's big enough to put sound systems in and lighting systems in and it's big enough to track well, even though it's a small prototype. And, uh, you know, operational possibilities are not so great. But what I find a lot of the make micro layout builders are doing is they're, they're exploring various themes. It's almost like they're painting or sculpting. And uh, rather than being a, a uh, uh, pipe-smoking, striped hat-wearing model railroader archetypical in the basement, they're they're going out in the field uh, with their their palette and and brushes and they're looking at something and trying to reduce it onto a canvas and uh, you know once you've done a painting and you enjoy the painting for a while you go and make another painting or another sculpture so they uh, they invest themselves in the uh, in each micro layout and do a fine job of it but it's not it's not something that's the finished product, and they don't marry themselves to it the The object for them is to keep building and doing more uh, and exploring more things and as they as they progress in the hobby they they come across new things they've never seen before uh, railways in, in peat bogs and and uh, sugar beets and mm-hmm. Uh, Produce uh, and War Department stuff, and uh, industrial applications, and sewage works, and brickworks, and sand quarries, and uh, you know, there's there's this uh, huge wealth of stuff on the continent uh, in Europe that most people have never even seen. Certainly, Uh, because well, in in North America, the railways uh, were—they went big right off the bat. Uh, They were. Continent-spanning, uh, massive, multi-million-dollar operations almost from day one. You know, aside from the the few uh, you know, uh, few startups in in the 1850s, um, but over in Europe and the UK, it was sort of a anybody that could that could slap a, a motor onto a frame and stick it on some some rails had a railway and. Uh, you know, whether it was the, the lumber mill or the uh or the local gas works, they had their own railway. So uh,
0: in terms number, of your in terms of your friend, I mean, did, does he does he create these micro layouts and then store some of them? Does he store every one that he makes or does he scrap them and restart them? I mean, what what's the what's his thinking in particular?
1: Well he's he's kept a couple of them. Um but uh one of them was based on a uh, based on sort of a, an amusement park. So, what he did was was uh, model the railway as if it was a miniature railway uh, with uh, with real you know full size people riding on it. So it was it wasn't the full size railway. It was it was like a a Disneyland ride in this amusement park, and uh, he did a terrific job of it. it was very it the it worked out really well in terms of the theme, but he's also done uh, a, a, like a Keyside uh, industry with a North American theme. I think that layout's gone. That was 15 years ago or so. Uh, he's done uh, multi-level, uh, multi-level layouts in, in 7mm scale with uh, the higher-level tracks uh, being done in, in N-gauge, so very, very narrow, and the lower-level track in HO gauge, 165 millimeter, so a wider gauge, but everything built to 7 millimeter scale. And uh, the one was like a, the, the narrow-gauge one was a feeder for the, the wider-gauge one. It was, it was all very clever stuff and very excellently done brickwork on the buildings and Uh, clever seam blocks so that there was actually three different distinct seams in this very small layout that you could look at with an elevated roadway above it with uh, an accident occurring on that and then uh, brick buildings and and whatnot. Um, Currently he's done one with a kind of a it's a uh, an orchard uh, theme with a stable and a a drive shed and uh, uh fetching looking figure on a Vespa motor scooter and a uh, small small scene with a sports car and and the this this train trundling through it every once in a while towing a small small locomotive towing a couple of uh, flat cars with box boxes of produce on them but it's uh I think he keeps probably one in three. Interesting. But, yeah, I don't think he keeps them all. There's just no room for them all, right? I think he's, in his retirement, he's moved to a smaller house so that he can't have as many things lying around, right?
0: Right. And he doesn't sell them or anything like that.
1: Well, um, not that I'm aware of. I I, I don't think he's ever bothered. to. I don't think he thinks of them that way. They're not... They're not something that you invest in in order to create some sort of uh, resaleable item. I think he's he's just exploring art in a different way than than other people do. It's he's got the kinetic factor and he's doing the the uh, structure building and sculpting and the scene the staging almost like a um, uh, a short story, right? He's he's putting together a uh, a visual short story.
0: Right, right. Because I could certainly see it as a hobby where um, you know you spent a certain amount of time detailing something and then you, you sold it to fund your next uh, your next layout. And another question I was going to ask you, which you've almost answered, is that it isn't like an audition for the potential of creating a much larger layout. He's not really honing his skills for a larger layout. It just seems to be his his own means of uh, expressing the hobby but the sounds of things. Well,
1: every every time I see uh, one of his new creations, I see something else that's that's new, a new locomotive that he's built from scratch, uh, over a, like the superstructure built over a, um, a commercially available mechanism or a highly modified uh, commercial offering um, or a new a new figure that he's uh, uh, cut apart and and re, reposed and, and blended everything. And then he's, he's a very fine figure painter. He has a, a website that he's put together on figure painting and his own techniques for that. Um, it's It's more of a, just a refinement overall. Everything, every time is a little bit better. The trees are better. The, the, the weathering on the wood is better the the ground cover is better it's, uh, it becomes more convincing as he as he builds his skill level but he's not he's not using it as a test coupon to build a larger basement empire you're absolutely right it's just uh it's you know uh if he was oil painting and he only he, it was if he was oil painting he only afford one canvas and after he'd finished the masterpiece and stood and stared at it for a while, he, he coated over it with the palette knife and, and then started painting again, you know. Uh, but uh, it, it, the whole group of the Narrow Gauge Madness people are, uh, are... They're a stunningly talented group of people in their own ways. Uh, I've seen some of the most <laughs> amazingly realistic-looking models... Uh, Rusted-out old hulks of uh, car bodies uh, sitting uh, beside, under, underneath a tree, half buried in the dirt, and a uh, small uh, diesel locomotive trundling by it. You know, uh, I'm just amazed at the level of skill that's displayed by these people, and they they choose to express it very individually. They're not they're not part of a modular group. Which they could be. I mean, there's easily enough of them to build a, a quite a, an extensive modular layout, but that would mean compromising each one's own personal um, uh, vision, I guess, to to present a a, a coherent uh, whole entity. And I think they're too much. Individually, they're too different to, to come to that sort of agreement, but they all recognize that they have this shared vision of the micro layout as a, as a palette and an expressive uh, medium, and they use that uh, as, their, as their binder for getting together and, and going to shows and, and all kind of gathered around in the same, same area and promoting the idea of narrow-gauge madness. It's contagious. Certainly, certainly. Have you let me talk for two hours?
0: More than two hours, in fact. <laughs> it's two hours and fifteen minutes. So, <laughs> so management approval is is definitely fading fast here. Um, my weekend may be spent hanging even more punitive Christmas lights associated with this. So, I probably should should end the call by by thanking you very much, Chris. You've uh, you've offered so much insight once again this evening, and, and thankfully, hopefully. All the call has been recorded. It still says the recording, so uh, we can live in hope. And Chris Shorthouse in New Zealand and everyone else listening in, you too can get the Chris Abbott approach. All you need to do is email questions into tommodelrailradio.com. Or even better, consider joining the mailing list. So go to modelrailradio.com, see the mailing list link, sign up, and you can ask the wealth of information that is Chris Abbott directly via the mailing list. So, Chris, it's been wonderful to have the opportunity to to chat with you this evening. You've inspired me to rip apart the past uh, few months' worth of work in front of me, or at least redesign it as I continue to bucket up more. And no doubt we'll, we'll have more questions for you. I'm not sure this probably isn't going to be the last podcast of the year. We have another one slated on the 18th at 6.30 Pacific. Folks, we typically start about uh, 15 minutes earlier um, and I think this show in particular because I'll have my other podcast recorded at 8pm. Yes, we won't be able to do another uh, two and a half hour podcast because I'll have Live following up. Chris, it's been wonderful talking to you. I'm looking forward to our next discussion in a couple of weeks' time. And if folks who are interested, uh, again, emailing questions, I'll talk to you in two weeks' time. Chris, it's been fun as always. Take care.
1: Thanks a lot, Tom. Talk to you soon. See ya. Bye-bye.